It is a privilege, I think I'm on now, um, it is a privilege to be here with you all this afternoon. Um, thank you for your courage and commitment to us for 18, over 18 and a half years. Uh, if you have followed our ministry for that long, uh, things have evolved uh, from ministering, starting out ministering to atheists, um, East German, post-communist East Germans. Um, to then work, work, moving in a more multicultural direction, working with refugees and then certain, some of the regional um, responsibilities we have now. But you know what? You've evolved too. <laughs> um, we were here when you met in an elementary school. Uh, we were here when you met in a community college. Uh, and now we've been here a couple of times to see uh, where the Lord has you now. So it's been exciting to see what the Lord is doing, uh, has done and is doing among you. And we're just honored to be partners. So thank you for your commitment to us. Um, I have uh, three cards um, left. Uh, the rest of them were um, gone very quickly this morning. But I hear there might be a rumor that there, uh, there is a rumor that there is a sign-up sheet uh, in the, um, on the round table in the foyer there. If you would like to follow our ministry, uh, just write your email on there. I'd be happy to add you to our email list, or if you want a hard copy, you could leave that. Um, it's a great way to stay in touch. It's a great way to get prayer requests. Um, if you'd like to support us, uh, it's uh, this card or that email. Uh, we're happy to, um, to let you know how you can do that. There's a number of different ways. Um, but one of the things we try to do in our newsletters is we want to dispel the notion that Europe is the dark continent where the Holy Spirit is doing nothing. Uh, we want to dispel the notion that the refugee crisis is in fact a crisis that's killing the church, rather just the opposite. Um, and we want to convey the message, um, one of, now is one of the most exciting times to be a missionary in Europe. Maybe the Lord's calling you to join us. We'd love to have you, uh, because the Spirit's doing some pretty amazing things. You want to find out about it? Sign up uh, to our newsletter. It's an honor also uh, to preach God's word. I'm thankful for this privilege. If you would turn with me uh, in the Pew Bible, it's page 917, where you can follow along. We're going to look at Acts chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 26. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was a, an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless somebody guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, quote, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or someone else? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about 
Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Thus concludes the reading of God's word. I want to begin by telling you a true story. My guess is, if I didn't preface it with the fact that this is a true story, that at first listen you'd think, fake news. A 10-year-old boy was taken captive by the Nazis in 1942 and taken to a concentration camp. He was separated from his parents and siblings. Life had come a part of the seams for this 10-year-old boy. Um, he was sitting next to the barbed wire fence in shock and weeping, and a young girl approached the barbed wire fence, and she looked at the boy, looked at the barbed wire, the camp, and didn't have categories for this sort of trauma. Their eyes met, but neither could offer an explanation. They stood on opposite sides of the fence in silence. She was holding an apple in her hand, and without much thought, she did the unthinkable. She lobbed the apple to the boy. The SS guards looked intentionally away, and then she disappeared. Next day, same time, same place, the boy waited expectantly for the girl. And she came, holding another apple. And this pattern repeated itself daily for some period of time. And then one day she came, and he spoke for the very first time. He said, Komm bitte morgen nicht, weil ich morgen zu einem anderen Lager transportiert werde. Don't come tomorrow. I'm being transported to another camp. And then he disappeared. Fast forward now to the late 50s, beginning of the 1960s. Both kids have now immigrated to the U.S. independently of one another. And the immigration office has sent them all over Ellis Island to get to attain a green card. And in the process... They've become acquainted with a number of organizations that help immigrants get to know one another on dates or to get to know other Americans. Unbeknownst to them, 20 years later, they meet on a blind date. It was common at that time to ask, so where were you during the war? And, and so it was with both of them. Well, he said, I was in a concentration camp. She said, really? You know, I used to throw apples to a boy in a concentration camp. He stared at her in disbelief. And then he said, um, did this boy tell you one day, don't come to this camp because tomorrow I'm going to be transported to another concentration camp? She stared at him in disbelief. They both realized that after 20 years, they were in the presence of one another once again. And he said, I was that boy. True story. But what struck me was what he asked next. He said, um, he said, and I quote, I was separated from you then. I don't want to be without you. 
would you marry me? And even more shocking, she said yes. Years passed by and they got married and at the wedding he expressed his love to her with these words. He said, quote, you cared for me in a concentration camp. You have cared for me all these years. I would starve if it wasn't for your love. Now I realize not of us, not all of us in this room are of the sentimental variety, in particular men. Um, we are often challenged in this category. But why does this story strike a chord with us? I'd suggest for two reasons. One, first, because I, I think deep down we all long for a universe that has order and meaning. I would suggest that we all long for a universe in which the countless events in our lives are orchestrated by an almighty God so that things happen like this. In other words, that life is not just a senseless game of chance and luck. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be amazing if the universe was so meaningfully ordered? And then second, I think we all long for a love that this girl showed. Someone who loves us regardless of the cost, regardless of what may come. Someone who promises to give you what you need in the moment that you need it. Some, a love that never stops pursuing us, never gives up on us, and always and forever love. You know, the book of Acts tells that story. Luke is telling that story throughout this entire book. It's written for us. And, and, and Luke, as he recounts the, uh, the countless details in this book, he's recording for us how God is orchestrating all details of his grand rescue plan in which the central message is this. God is saying this. If you know me, you know a God who's ordered things. If you know me, you know this sort of love. You see, the text we just read is a great example of that. And that's what I want us to look at tonight. There are three things that I, I think will help structure our study this evening. Three things we shouldn't miss. God is a God who sends, who seeks, and who saves. God is a God who sends, who seeks, and who saves. Let's look at those briefly together. First, God is a God who sends. So the story begins with an angel who commands Philip to go on a mission trip. I can imagine the sense of affirmation or confirmation that Philip might have felt. Why? Because if you read the beginning of the chapter, um, he had already seen tremendous success in ministry. Uh, he brought God's word to the Samaritans, and we read in verse 8 that the entire city, an entire city rejoiced over him in the message that he has brought. That hadn't happened to us in Berlin yet, but wouldn't that be nice? He did miracles, healed people, including a world-class magician. Can you imagine he showed a world-class uh, magician where true supernatural power comes from? And then God knocks on his door once again, and if I were him, and this were my history, I'd expect a promotion at this point. I mean, Jesus does say, after all, Matthew 25, 23, we all know this, right, in the parable of the talents, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little, therefore I will set you over much, right? So what would be appropriately much? 
Well, I'd start with a commission to Jerusalem. That's a good place to start. Why? Because that's where the big dogs are. I mean, if you get called to, to Jerusalem, you're running with the apostles. You're a somebody. And not only that, or maybe, maybe it's not Jerusalem, maybe it's another city with international flair, something with gourmet street foods, concerts, a winning baseball team that has the best three pitchers in the National League, theaters, art scene, maybe a small house with a garden and a sizable pension. But what does Philip actually get? Verse 26, God calls him to the deserts. Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Again, if I were Philip, I'd say respectfully, Mr. Angel, you need a marketing department because that was a horrible sell. But you see, God is actually telling him, sending him to a place that's not even specific. It's vague. He's just telling him what he'd see there. You know, That ought to remind us of a story in the Old Testament. Abram. God uh, God tells Abram to go from his country, go from his family, go from his father's house to a land that he will show him. In all humility, I would have said, let's let's, let's reverse that order. You tell me where I'm going and then I'll decide whether I want to go. But then you look at Philip's audience. Look at his target group. When Philip arrived... No crowds, no masses, no cameras, no spotlight, no stage. Just one man. What happened to the I will appoint you over many? Let me apply this personally. How many of us think but never say, Lord, I've served you all these years. I've been true, I've been faithful, I've grown in faith. Why did I end up in this marriage? Why didn't you bless me with kids? Or why did you bless me with the kids you blessed me with? Or God, I've ended up in a job that I now hate. How do I get out of this? How do I finally end up in a situation where my job, a job that corresponds to my calling and passions? Do you find yourself this afternoon at a point where you're asking, Lord, why am I here? Really? Why have you given me this calling? It appears to me to be so insignificant and irrelevant. Can I confess something to you? That question has crossed my lips more times than I care to admit as a missionary. And this is particularly a problem if you've experienced success in ministry, success in a job. Here's the problem. We love God and we have a wonderful plan for his life. When our gaze, our focus is first on our happiness and our career and secondarily on his kingdom, we most often end up with disillusionment, despair, and depression. But did you notice that Luke emphasizes three times in this passage that God has sent Philip personally? Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip. Verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip. Verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip. Here's the point. We are not mindless drones in God's plan. Rather, personal agents 
personally invited by the king to be a part of his rescue mission to restore all things. Are we ready to follow him regardless of where he calls us? As the hymn writer says, are we truly content to fill a little space if thou be glorified? Is our gaze really on his kingdom? The people he desires us to rescue are on me, on my happiness, my contentedness. You know, one of the reasons I think God has given us this story is to challenge our expectation of what it means to be a successful Christian, successful missionary. It's not about masses of people following you. God's not impressed with numbers. I think this chapter reminds us what one theologian calls divine math. If I'm honest, I, I long for, to see masses of people come to faith through me, through the churches we've worked with in Berlin. You know, I'd love to write those kinds of newsletters. I mean, those are fun. But our focus should not be on the masses, but on our readiness to pursue the individual. So here's my question to you this afternoon. Who has God placed in your life so that to, in order that you radiate the grace and the glory of God? Who are the people that the Lord has placed on your heart in order to preach the good news, in order to reach out and serve them? God is a God who sends, but he's also a God who seeks. I want, I want us to look at the types of people that God seeks. Who are the recipients of his grace? Well, one of them, God is a God who seeks the few. We touched on that, the individual. But as I was studying this, I was struggling to get my mind around the fact that the God who created the furthest galaxies, the one who knows every single star by name, every moon, every, every planet he set in place, is interested in a single man in the middle of a desert riding in a chariot. See, one of the struggles, if we're honest as Christians, one of the struggles that we all have is the ability to hold two things simultaneously in balance. One, the immense power and majesty of God and the immense personal love and interest in us. God's not only the, uh, a God who seeks the few, he also seeks the far off, verse 27. And Philip arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, Ethiopia, maybe helpful to understand, Ethiopia was not a nation at that period, or at least not the nation as we understand it today. It was more a designation for a person of color. But for the first readers of Ethiopia, it had another important meaning. Ethiopia symbolized the end of the world. Why? Um, Ethiopia was a region outside the Roman Empire, and so therefore was at the end of the world. It would be like us saying, well, he comes from Timbuktu, right? Does anybody actually know where Timbuktu is? But it designates the end of the world to us. But you see, that's precisely the point. Jesus says in Acts chapter one, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
God promises that he would bring his message of saving grace to the ends of the earth. He pursued the hearts of men and women to the ends of the earth. But you see, that promise predates Acts chapter 1. Look at Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. I quote, Is it too light or small an affair for you, my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you... Israel, a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You see, God announced his rescue plan to Israel, but was actually pointing forward to the true Israel, Jesus, and us in him. So God is a God who seeks the few. He also seeks the far off. And lastly, he seeks the fringe. He seeks the marginalized, the outsiders. You see, the Ethiopian was a eunuch. And as a eunuch, someone who's castrated, um, you had a number of advantages in life. A eunuch was often entrusted with important things. For example, you were often assigned a position to oversee the harem of the king. The thinking was, for someone who's castrated, there's little danger of an extramarital affair with one of the king's wives. But often eunuchs were given positions near the queen to oversee her treasure. So there are some advantages, but there are also disadvantages. In the ceremonial law of Moses, a eunuch was impure, unfit, forbidden to go to the temple. Did you notice in the text what the Ethiopian was there in Jerusalem to do? Did you catch that? To worship. He was forbidden to draw near to the place where God's presence was most acutely felt. Why? Because as with the lame, as with the blind, that bodily defect was a sign of a spiritual defect that we all have. We cannot come near to God with with the defects that we have unless he purifies and heals us. But being a eunuch had another consequence that we can't overlook. This meant... He never had and would never have the opportunity to be fully integrated into Jewish life. Why? Because the lack of circumcision excluded him from the Jewish community. He was an outsider in so many different ways. Can I apply this today? One of the topics that the church is struggling with today, one of the topics our own denomination is struggling with today is this. How do we reach out to the sexually broken in our communities? How do you most effectively love the LGBTQ plus community? What does the gospel have to, to say regarding the issue to us and then to them? Most of, us who, most of those who struggle with same-sex attraction or transgenderism do not feel welcome in our churches. Shame on us. They feel disdained, disregarded, dishonored, and discriminated against, like the eunuch. But look at verses 32 and 33. The passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him, for his life was taken away from the earth. And then the eunuch says to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? 
about himself or someone else. And Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture in Isaiah, he told him the good news about Jesus. See, the passage that's being referred to here is critical to our understanding of the text. The text quoted deals with injustice. It deals with suffering and humiliation. It's about a man who would never have children. About someone who would never have grandchildren. They have no legacy whatsoever. In his land, this person would have been treated with respect, with value, with dignity. But in Jerusalem, he would have been looked down upon, excluded, and marginalized. You see, the, the eunuch read this text and said, finally, somebody understands me. He resonated. It described his life, his feelings, his status. And then here's the question that he asked. Where and how is there hope for somebody like me? An outsider, sexually marginalized, a rejected one. Where is there hope for somebody who's seeking to understand the world and their place in it? And here's the answer. It's a surprising answer. In Jesus. In an outside, marginalized, rejected by everyone else seeking God. Jesus understands humiliation and rejection. He too would have been treated with respect, dignity, and honor in heaven. But among men, he was treated with dishonor, marginalization, and rejection to the point of death. But the text quoted here in Isaiah not only describes his humiliation, it, actually, it also goes on to describe the hope this person has. It describes the ultimate hope for all outsiders. Someone would come, it says, and somebody would fulfill all the demands of the ceremonial law for all, for imperfect people. Listen to the words of Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 8. If you will, just close your eyes for a minute and imagine hearing these words as a eunuch for the very first time. Listen. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself say to the Lord, the Lord will surely separate me from the people. For the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that pleased me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls. I will give them a monument, a name better than, the, better than sons or daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, one that will not be cut off. I will bring them to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Can you imagine hearing those words for the first time? In other words, God wouldn't just welcome, he wouldn't just include the eunuch, he would give him a status better than sons or daughters and make him a king. That was the promise that was finding its fulfillment in this man. Let me apply this more specifically. What separates you from God? Well, what creates distance in your mind between you and God? What are the reasons that you never say but you secretly believe that hinder you from drawing near, having an intimate relationship with God? It's your past. Are there things in your past that you've done, you've said, you've thought that leave you feeling impure, leave you feeling, I'm just simply not worthy to be loved by this God? 
If I'm honest with you, one of the things that I struggle with as a Christian is the secret belief that I'm not good enough. If you could really see what I thought, if you heard every word that came out of my mouth, you'd be shocked and I'd be utterly ashamed. The whispers of the enemy are so loud in those moments that I secretly believe I deserve to be distant from God. It's only fair that God doesn't hear my prayers. In fact, I've earned punishment, nothing more. But the good news of this text is this. I am truly not good enough. And you aren't either. But God initiated a rescue mission, one in which he draws near to us first. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden. It was God who sought out Adam and Eve first. It was God who drew near to his people in the desert first. It was he who drew near to his people at the tabernacle and the temple. All that pointing forward to the time that he would initiate by sending his son into the world to draw near to us. He would send his son to fulfill every aspect of his holy law in exchange by faith I received his perfect righteousness. See, when Jesus hung on the cross, at that moment, at that moment, God made his own son an outsider in order that I could be welcomed as the outsider as a son. It took me from being an outsider, from being, from being an unworthy son or daughter, and made me by grace his son. If you struggle as I do, please hear this. The only thing, the only thing that truly keeps you distant from God is your unbelief, my unbelief. The unbelief that God is truly, believe, uh, truly great, unbelief that he's truly forgiving, that he's truly welcoming, that the unbelief that Jesus' death and resurrection is truly sufficient to cleanse you and me, to empower us to live as different people. You see, God is a God who sends. He's also a God who seeks. And then lastly, he's a God who saves. Look at verse 36. So they were going along the road. They came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Well, that's strange. How in the world did we get on the topic of baptism, Right? This passage, actually, I think is really helpful for us to understand what baptism is and what it's not. Baptism is an external sign of the love of God. It is not primarily about our decision to follow him. It's about him. We don't know what, exactly what led the eunuch to ask this question, but here's what most theologians think. If you read seven verses before the text that's actually quoted in Isaiah 52, we read this. Listen. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. He shall sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they, uh, told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. 
But he, my servant, will sprinkle the Gentiles or the nation. You see, that language of sprinkling was a Jewish expression for baptism, for cleansing. And in the Old Testament, it was used in regard to the tabernacle. It was a sign or reminder that we needed to be cleansed and forgiven. It's a sign or reminder that our sin is real, that the whole sacrificial system pointed to how awful sin is, how real punishment is, and the cost that it takes to be made clean. You see, the priest, after making sacrifices on your behalf, would take the blood of the offering on your behalf and he would sprinkle you. Uh, In other words, you would leave the worship surface a bloody mess. You'd look like you'd been in the front lines of battle. But it was a sign that you were baptized. It was a sign that you were cleansed. You see, baptism is not a sign of your faithfulness. It's not a sign of my faithfulness. Rather, the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of one who would sacrifice himself for me, the commitment of one to me. You know, baptism has been compared to a wedding ring. And in some ways, I think it's a helpful analogy. You see, I, I didn't put this ring on my finger. Eowyn did. And when she set this ring on my finger, she said to me, I take you as my husband to have and to hold for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. You see, this ring doesn't point to me. It it points to Eowyn. It points to her promise that defines me. You see, baptism is just like that. Jesus stands before his bride, his sinful people, and he says, I take you to be my husband or my wife. I will love you. I will care for you. I will hold fast to you in sickness and in health. And you know what? Not even death will separate us. Regardless of the cost to me, I will never forsake you, I will never abandon you, and I will never give up on you. You see, when that promise defines your life, when it becomes the center of gravity, it will change you. You begin to live with hope, peace, contentment, and joy, regardless of your circumstances. I close with this. Jesus is not simply a savior who occasionally throws us apples. He's a savior who rips open the barbed wire fence and sets us free. He's a savior who was willing to go into the concentration camp for us at the cost of his life to set us free from the power of sin and death forever. His death frees us from the power of death. You see, it didn't matter whether we're individuals or outsiders. And then, we can't miss this, he's the one who places a ring on our finger and says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Such is the grace that is to be only found in Jesus. No other Messiah, whether created, created by us or otherwise, provides such a promise. You see, that's the heart of the gospel. There is no other gospel. There is no greater gospel. It's that gospel which propels us into missions to say, Lord, I'm willing to follow you anywhere you send me because you were willing to go to the ends of the earth to pursue me in my brokenness. It's that gospel which helps melt the hearts of the broken 
to realize there is not a single person on the face of this planet that is beyond the reach of God's grace. Not a one. So my question, two questions I leave with you this evening. Is God sending you? Is God sending you to whom? Or is God seeking you today? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bow in thanks and in gratitude for the work of redemption, the work which began in creation and will culminate ultimately when we all gather around a feast prepared for the, only the broken who cling to this promise. Lord, as we come to your table, we remember the kingdom is not built on our ingenuity. It's not built in our strength and it's certainly not built on our righteousness. It is built solely on the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so we come to feast as a foretaste of what's yet to come in a promise that no one can take away. So we come with joy, confessing and clinging to that promise in Jesus' name. Amen.